I want to talk tonight about different aspects of equanimity, how we cultivate it, and how it is expressed or functions in our practice and in our lives. We've spoken already about this triad of practices that we'll be doing over our time together, beginning with the the breath meditation, samatha practice, leading to samadhi, then developing loving kindness, as we've been doing for the past week or so, and then moving this week into the awareness or emptiness practices, and how the heart of those are these beautiful qualities of steadiness, warmth, and spaciousness, and not wanting to completely separate these practices as being very different, but having this fundamental nature, or you could say these qualities, really being beneficial for all of them. And when I thought about those qualities of steadiness, warmth, and spaciousness, they also, to me, described equanimity. The mind that has equanimity has those qualities, steadiness, warmth, spaciousness. So very aligned all of these practices, all of the intentions behind them, and then the actual qualities of mind and heart that they end up cultivating. And in the text, there's a traditional way of talking about equanimity. It's called six-limbed equanimity. Obviously, we usually just have four, but what it's talking about is equanimity at each of the six sense doors. What is doing that? I know, but what is it scraping? Oh, it's dropped down. always do that. Thank you. Okay. So equanimity at each of the six sense doors is a deep meditative state. I'll talk a bit more about later on, um, but they mention, talk about it in the progressive insight, that map of the deepening of vipassana practice. And I think I mentioned this morning that I've done a couple of retreats um, on equanimity, teaching with Kamala Masters, who loves to teach on equanimity. And so instead of focusing on metta, as we usually do, we would focus on the practice of equanimity. Um, And in all of its forms, but especially doing equanimity practice like we did this morning. And so I, ref- I use, from those retreats, we're ref- was reflecting a lot on equanimity and how to develop it. And what I came up with was another list that I called three-limbed equanimity. And I saw how equanimity is both cultivated through and expresses itself through sila samadhi panya, which is, again, the shorthand for the Noble Eightfold Path. And that the sila is the action section of the Eightfold Path. And when our, well, when our um, actions are based in an equanimous mind, they're not harming. We actually just act in a way that's kind and uh, ethical. And that also, in my list, includes equanimity as a parami and uh, the understanding of the eight worldly winds. So these are all kind of the action section. And then equanimity as samadhi, how it expresses itself as samadhi, um, obviously as a meditative experience. 
uh, one of the seven factors of awakening. It's an expression of jhana. It's pointed to, again, in this progressive insight, this map of, of practice. And then equanimity expressed as wisdom, panya, the wisdom section, um, through understanding uh, the five subjects for frequent recollection, again, I'll talk about those, the understanding of karma. And as I said this morning, the understanding of karma is central to the practice of equanimity as a Brahma-vihara. So that's the framework for my talk this evening, these different facets of equanimity. So beginning with equanimity supporting our sila, our ethical conduct or our actions, Again, when the mind is stable and balanced, it's non-reactive. So we're not striking out at others through our reactivity, through our fear or aggression, or our greed, trying to take from others what's perhaps not ours, or through delusion, where just through our confusion we can end up harming others. Equanimity provides this stable basis for our actions. I can remember on my very first Vipassana retreat many, many, many years ago, um, I knew very little about the Dharma, if anything. I'd had some minimal exposure through reading and had no clue what I was getting into. I did a 10-day retreat with um, Venerable Goenka, S.N. Goenka. It's very intense. And I, you know, changed my life, but uh, it was challenging But one of the striking, I guess you would call it an insight, but that really shifted and and formed the basis of that change in my life, I remember thinking, do you mean it's possible not to keep hurting other people through my actions, in my relationships? I didn't even think that was possible. I just thought we all just bounced off each other and sometimes it was good and often it was really painful. But that was just what life was like. No one had ever told me that there was another way. And I don't even remember what he said that gave me that idea, but just a sense of, of um, dharma framing of a life and, and action. It was, it was so inspiring. It was kind of bright faith for me. It certainly wasn't in any way established, and I can't say that it's completely established now. I can still act in a way that can hurt others even hurt myself, but I have a sense of that as a possibility. And I've talked to a few of you about what I see the training that we're doing here, but certainly all of our Dharma training is learning to align our actions with our intentions. We have these wholesome intentions, wholesome aspirations. We do or we wouldn't be here on a retreat like this. But how often do we not fully live up to that, what we know to be true or wholesome or skillful, just because of the kalesas running through the mind. And so this training is so much about steadying the mind, these words of the Buddha, creating a mind, developing a mind that's malleable, wieldy, and steady. And then that can uh, get aligned with our intentions. And I really see that as how equanimity supports ethical conduct, non-harming, ahimsa or sila. And then equanimity as a parami. Again, I see the essence of the parami. The paramis are these beautiful qualities of mind and heart that necessarily get developed as we practice, but are 
both the results and, and the, the supports for the awakening of the mind and heart. So these ten beautiful qualities. And I see the essence of them is really non-harming, like sila, and, but supported by wisdom. And that equanimity is central to the expression of these qualities like sila and metta and dana, generosity and patience and truthfulness. This beautiful list of qualities. Unless equanimity is to some degree developed, these other ones can't manifest fully. And as usual, equanimity is at the end of the list. It's the last of the list of of the paramis, And I take that to mean it's perhaps the most challenging to develop, but also the most onward leading. But again, I love how Sylvia Borstein talks about the paramis. She said they're all holograms of each other. You could see within each of the paramis all of the others reflected. And so I think that's true with equanimity, just this beautiful synthesis. Um, And I remember reading... uh, in one of Joseph's books, quoting Lady Sayadaw, Burmese meditation master, who says that patience and equanimity are the mainstay for the perfections, for the paramis. Only when one has set oneself up in these two can one expect to fulfill the rest. So he kind of put patience and equanimity as the uh, essential paramis to develop, and then all the others would follow And I really see in patience a strong um, connection to metta because patience is is gentle endurance, is acceptance. And so, again, not seeing these qualities of mind and heart or the Brahma-viharas as completely separate, but really just different facets of each other. And so in equanimity, when the mind has that kind of stability, Again, it's, it supports our sila. We don't act in ways that harm others or harm ourselves because we're not acting out of reactivity. So it really brings that gift of safety, the bliss of blamelessness that the Buddha talked about and these wise responses to both the inner and the outer experience. So equanimity is a foundation for our sila as one of the paramis and how 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 aligned they are with each other. And then equanimity in relationship to what's called the eight worldly winds or the eight vicissitudes, the eight uh, worldly concerns. I spoke, I mentioned them briefly this morning, this list of four pairs of qualities of gain and loss, fame and disrepute, praise and blame, joy and sorrow, pleasure and pain, you could say. And that for all of us, these are always alternating. They're just uh, part of being alive, being human. The Buddha experienced these four. But most of us, especially in our unwise, unequanimous times, spend it trying to chase or hold on to the positive aspects and push away, resist, deny, feeling the negative ones. And that, if you really look at the thrust of a lot of people's lives, It's about just doing that, chasing the gain, the fame, the praise, the pleasure, and pushing away, being resistant to, not not recognizing the others. And what we see as we start to reflect on these qualities is how transient they all are. 
how conditional they all are, therefore not in our control. And how, what, say, for example, what one person might praise us for, the next person would blame us for. For the same action, you know, in the same moment, can have this experience of praise or blame. And so start to recognize we can't please everyone, definitely know that, um, but we can't spend our lives chasing these qualities, these pleasant ones. It's, it's just, um, it's a lost cause, really. We have to start looking for what increases or supports true well-being, true happiness, the happiness that the Buddha spoke about, which is based in wholesomeness, based in, in um, non-harming, based in having a mind that has equanimity, is in balance, has, ex- is expressed through these four Brahma-viharas that we've been talking about. And so it's a call to be true to ourselves. Again, this alignment that I just spoke about of our actions with our intentions or our aspirations. Um, because when we get caught chasing them, they just start a cycle that only increases the greed or the aversion or the delusion. They're, they're um, feedback loops that get going and they increase fear because as soon as you have something that you're grasping onto, it's, it's um, held in that way, it invites judging and clinging and comparing and all the ways we can set ourselves up for failure, basically, because if you get into that mindset, it's never enough, right? There's always one more manifestation of whatever it might be, a new job or title or car or all of those different expressions. And it becomes very self-centered when we really see through the push and pull of the eight worldly concerns there's so much more freedom to express compassion and generosity. So much more a sense, just like we've spoken about with the Dalai Lama, of seeing more what unites us than, oh, if they have something, you know, it means I don't, or look at me, I've got more than someone else. And so it naturally supports equanimity, just not being pushed or pulled. Ajahn Chah would teach a lot about these and he would say the eight worldly concerns are of equal value when we're aware of them. And he said when we're aware of them, aware of their push and pull but not pulled into them, he said that's success. Getting praise, gain, you know, fame and, and pleasure, he said that's not success. But the stable equanimous mind, that's success. So the next in my list of three is the meditative experiences of equanimity. And hopefully you saw through our practice, which many of you are still continuing, having as a foundation of the calming breath meditation the stability of mind, in the calming and the quietening of mind, that's a flavor of equanimity. You know, when the hindrances are relatively quiet, sometimes even at bay, we call that concentration, or or we've been talking about it in relationship to concentration, but can't you also see that as equanimity? 
that that quiet mind is not reactive, not in that push and pull. And so this balanced, spacious mind that's connected to the present moment, not stuck, not lost. You see that flavor of equanimity that was there as you hopefully experienced that. And whenever you read uh, descriptions or definitions of what mindfulness is, I usually find there's a flavor of equanimity in, in that. So Sylvia Borstein says, Mindfulness is the aware, balanced acceptance of present experience. It isn't more complicated than that. It is opening to or receiving the present moment, pleasant or unpleasant, just as it is, without either clinging to it or rejecting it. You could say the experience of equanimity is all of that, right? So they're very aligned. And then Joseph says, Mindfulness brings the quality of poise, equilibrium, and balance to the mind, keeping it sharply focused with the attitude of sitting back and watching the passing show. Again, that flavor of equanimity at the heart of these definitions of mindfulness. So it's a strong uh, it's a thing it's a quality of mind that gets cultivated through this practice and of course it's one of the seven factors of awakening we've already talked about that these energizing factors that support the deepening of the practice culminating in pity and in, in rapt attention but then moving into the calming factors tranquility concentration and then equanimity Again, equanimity last. Equanimity is the culmination. Equanimity needed, needed to be suffused through all the others, but really kind of the springboard um, for awakening because when these factors, and especially equanimity, are fully developed, as it says in the suttas, it fulfills true knowledge and deliverance. It's the springboard, the doorway to equanim uh, to nibbana, and then we've spoken about the jhana factors, the jhanic factors. These five factors that get developed as we steady the mind and heart. Um, they get developed through vipassana practice as well, but very clearly get developed in the samatha practice, vitaka vichara. Again, with that peak experience of pity, calming, softening into the sukha. And then that last factor, ikagata, unification of mind, one-pointedness. Again, not narrow, but the mind not being distracted, not being discursive, not being uh, not proliferating. And its essence is, uh, uh, there was a question this morning about ikagata, it does have a relationship to equanimity in that unification of mind. Again, non-reactive, not split, uh, centered. And in the development of the jhanas, the fourth jhana, its, its essence is ikagata, and its flavor is equanimity. Just this cool, steady absorption into stillness, this flavor of equanimity in the fourth jhana as a meditative experience. And then, as I've mentioned a couple of times, the progressive insight, this map of practice that goes through these different stages that when one is doing intensive vipassana 
um, mindfulness practice. Um, there are these stages where we're seeing more and more deeply into the nature of reality, to the impermanence of everything, the arising and passing. And after kind of going through sometimes the real challenges of that deep way of seeing the, the emptiness, the anatta of, of those, the three characteristics of that way of seeing, we get to what's called sankara upekka. And again, this is the upekka equanimity of formations. And this is another way of saying that six-limbed equanimity where whatever arises at the six sense doors there's a neutrality or an equanimity. The mind is so in alignment with the way things are. No resistance, no holding on. There's a, a coolness and a quietness to the mind in that phase that's a, a deep equanimity about formations. And that again, a springboard for the true and free seeing that arises in that map of practice. And often after the experience of deep equanimity, these wisdom understandings arrive, yata bhuta nanadasana, seeing things as they really are. And so the last expression of equanimity I'll talk about is equanimity as wisdom, panya, last of the three sections of the Eightfold Path. And so lots of different ways that equanimity is an expression of wisdom and through the cultivation of equanimity, wisdom gets developed. So one of them is the five subjects for frequent recollection. Many of you know this list. The Buddha recommended it to be frequently recollected, so we chant it often on retreats. Um, it's chanted daily in monasteries all over the world. And these recollections are, I am of the nature to age. I have not gone beyond aging. I am of the nature to sicken. I have not gone beyond illness. I am of the nature to die. I have not gone beyond death. All that is beloved and pleasing to me will become otherwise, will become separated from me. And that Last one, I am the owner of my karma, heir to my karma, born of my karma. Whatever karma I shall do, for good or for ill, of that I will be the heir. So again, that sounds familiar. And the first three, you might recognize the, the, the first three of the heavenly messengers that inspired the Buddha on his quest for awakening, his, his shock and horror and fear of old age sickness and death. The, the, re- the recognition of those, the inevitability of those. And then this teaching on the conditioned nature of everything. We can't hold on to anything. Our, our bodies, our health certainly, but our relationships, our possessions. This deep dive into the truth of things. Now it can sound, if you were hearing this for the first time, a little grim, perhaps, to just say, yep, that's what's happening. This is the direction it's going. But that to truly land in those as truths, there's so much freedom because what can be taken away from you? 
when you've already let go in such a deep and profound way. And for all of us, whatever our relationship, we have to do that over and over again. I know I do. But I know that it's not wrong that I will get old and die or injuries or illness will happen. This is the nature. doesn't mean it won't be painful, but we don't add that second arrow that says, oh no, why me? Why is this happening to me? Because it's the nature, nature of this body. And I'm sure many of you have heard this um, piece from Ajahn Chah about the glass. He says, you say, don't break my glass. Can you prevent something that's breakable? from breaking. If it doesn't break now, it'll break later on. If you don't break it, someone else will. If someone else doesn't break it, one of the chickens will. The Buddha says to accept this. He penetrated the truth of these things, seeing that this glass is already broken. Whenever you use this glass, you should reflect that it's already broken. Do you understand this? The Buddha's understanding was like this. He saw the broken glass within the unbroken one. Whenever its time is up, it will break. Develop this kind of understanding. Use the glass. Look after it. Until when one day it slips out of your hand, smash. No problem. Why is there no problem? because you saw its brokenness before it broke. Such wisdom, it doesn't mean we don't take care. It doesn't mean we can't use and appreciate. But we know it's nature. The nature of the glass, the nature of this body, the nature of all bodies. And so we open to that. There's a deep truth, so the mind doesn't waver as much when these conditions change as they inevitably will. And then the last of these five subjects is the reflection on karma, the same as the one that's offered as the main phrase for the Brahma-vihara practice of equanimity. It's the understanding of karma. And this is perhaps one of the more challenging teachings of the Buddha, Um, this understanding of karma, K-A-M-M-A in the Pali, often hear it as karma, with an R in Sanskrit. Um, And it came into use in the West, what, in the 60s or so? You know, instant karma's going to get you. It was in songs and written about as some kind of metaphysical act of retribution or, you know, some, it's some way of understanding why things happen, but it had a lot of um, sense of people deserving things or needing things, especially bad things, to happen to them. Or you got this illness, this cancer, so that you, you needed to learn something. That's why this happened to you. And it can be used to blame or judge or, or kind of push away. I call that metaphysical malpractice, because that is not... <laughs> what the teachings on karma are about. It's never about um, that kind of blame or judging and, and people that put that onto other people, very painful and unskillful, not, not appropriate, not wise, not correct. So 
Kama literally and simply means action. So sometimes we'll say you are the owner of your kama or you are the owner of your action. That's the literal meaning of the word. Vipaka kama is the result of action. And often when we use the word kama, we're actually talking about vipaka kama, which is the result or the fruit of our actions. And so this phrase, all beings or you or I, are the owners or heirs of their karma or actions. Their happiness and unhappiness depend upon their actions and not upon my wishes for them. And as I said this morning, this is always a bit disconcerting after you've spent hours, days, multiple repetitions of phrases, wishing well, caring, and then this. What does that mean? What, there's a lot to say about that, but on a kind of simplest level, it points us back to this deep truth that we've talked about a number of times, that our metta practice isn't in the wishing about directly having the belief that we can change someone's experience, make them happy. Again, if it was that simple, we'd all just do it and go home. It's the purification of our own hearts and minds and our capacity to wish well, unreservedly, wholeheartedly, no matter what the conditions internally and no matter what the conditions externally. That's what we're developing. There has to be a sincerity in the wish for well-being and all of the other qualities. But if we're grasping onto, oh, this has got to work, and, you know, we joke about people going home and, and checking in. Did you feel it? You know, I just spent a week wishing you met you. And you like, people are like, what are you talking about? I didn't feel anything. So it's not about that. And the equanimity phrase helps that to land for us. We have to do the metta with that understanding. We can sincerely wish well because that leads to this purification of our own hearts. But we know this deeper truth. All beings are the owners of their karma. And so what is karma? As the Buddha said, it's one of the four imponderables. If you try and figure it out too much in too much detail, it'll drive you crazy because there are so many intertwined causes and conditions that it's not possible to kind of say A causes B. A equals C. But for the Buddha and in his teachings, it was central. It was central to his awakening and it was central to how he understood the world, how he understood suffering and the end of suffering. So woven into all of his teachings about sila, about ethical conduct, about the nature of the world, about rebirth and all of his understanding of cosmology, this potent teaching on dependent origination, Paticca Samuppada, was central to this teaching or understanding of karma. And the simplest way of framing is cause and effect, the law of conditionality. Again, not in any sort of rigid linear sense, but just knowing there's a lawful nature to how things unfold. The more we understand or intuit of that lawful nature, the more we can live in alignment with that. But again, not to try and figure it out to the finest degree. And at the time of the Buddha, the understanding of karma was around. 
uh, and it meant action, as it uh, did for the Buddha. But there were three main views at the time of the Buddha. The first one was all present experience is a result of the past, and you were kind of locked into that. It was a deterministic model, very no free will, basically. You know, if your father was a potter, you were in the potter family, you became a potter. That was what you did. It was very um, rigid about castes and the castes you were, the, these levels of society you might have been born into, certainly very um, rigid about gender roles and what was possible for the different genders. The next view was it was everything that happened on earth was a result of the gods and their decisions. They were kind of just, you know, playing with us or expressions of the gods' choices and wills and creation. And then the the last view was there were no prior causes or rhyme or reason. It was all just random, almost chaotic. The Buddha rejected all of these. He held, or remained with that Kama means action, but he aligned it with intentional action. And that intention was key to determining the ultimate fruits of an action. What was the intention? Again, a simple example, if you, you know, swat a mosquito out of aversion, there's karma to that. But if you happen to sit down on a seat or step on an ant that you didn't notice was there, um, there isn't the same karma associated with that. So intention is key. And he also saw it as a natural law of the universe. So not something personal, not determined by the gods, not kind of aimed at, you know, being punitive, but just the scales of the universe moving in uh, out in this lawful way. And again, in his understanding, um, connected to rebirth, being born into a life with certain conditions and then your actions and response to those conditions determining the unfolding of that life and then onward and onward with the potential for, in the freeing of the heart and mind, you know, being free of that cycle of rebirth and certainly of suffering. But even if you don't believe in rebirth, we get reborn all the time, right? We talk about this just waking up in the morning, a grumpy self or a bright mind or a calm mind. And we can see if we hold on to that as an identity, how that will follow us through the day. Being a good meditator or a bad meditator, an energetic meditator or a lazy one, all of the identities we take on and then we... Um, let them stick, right? Because we feed them. Even the negative ones that we hold on to in our critical, judgmental mind. And so we see, you know, as we act out of that, a mother out of love of her daughter, nagging and trying to prompt and poke to certain actions, and the daughter out of wanting independence, resisting, and that cycle of the mother wanting something in the, for the daughter out of, out of love and the resistance because the child wants independence. And those cycles, we can just get stuck in them over and over again. And that's the solidification of a, a sense of self and a karmic pattern. As the Buddha said, that which the mind frequently dwells and ponders upon will become the inclination of the mind. 
And so if we act out of, feed, uh, are, are attuned to anger and ill will, and that's what we keep circling around, that's what will get fed back to us. People will pick up on that, and it's likely we'll get anger and ill will back. If we act and support and, and, and um, develop kindness and care, it's likely that we'll receive that. And so these feedback loops get going. And so there's this modern rephrasing of the Buddha's teachings where it said, the thought manifests as word, the word manifests as deed, the deed develops into habit, and habit hardens into character. So watch the thought and its ways with care and let it spring from love, born out of concern for all beings. So it's just a sense of these actions of, of thought, speech, and action having an imprint, having an imprint. And again, in this alignment that I spoke about earlier of our actions with our intentions, we can actually create karmic feedback loops that deepen the beautiful qualities that we actually want to support for ourselves. And I think I said this morning, it's not a teaching about anyone uh, deserving to suffer or a teaching of blame or judgment. That's not how it's held in the suttas. It's just causes and conditions arising and changing. And seeing that we do have choice, it's a kind of midway between determinism and free will. If we're not aware of our intentions and, and, and the results of our actions, we just act out of habit and it can seem like there's no free will. If we bring mindfulness to our choices, then there's the possibility of actually redirecting um, those choices and making wiser choices. I remember a, a while ago, actually not that long ago, it was a few years ago, in my life, um, all of the causes and conditions were leading me to have more and more responsibility. Responsibilities in teaching, in programming, in um, programs, in um, holding res- uh, roles at Spirit Rock. I was gu- I'd been guiding teacher for close to 10 years on all kinds of boards and committees, but also other, other things as well. And there came a time where I felt, well, the opposite of what we say in the Metta Sutta, where we're invited to be unburdened by duties. <laughs> I felt very much the opposite. And it seemed so, I mean, like I was on a treadmill. It wasn't out of my clear choice of saying, yes, you know, I really, sign me up for that. I'm, you know, it was more, you know, what's that thing where everyone else steps back and you're like, oh, I guess it's me doing this. Um, at least that was how I was relating to it. And I felt this, which a tendency that I have, which is to resistance. It's like, oh no, do I have to? This is, this is too hard. This is too complicated. I'm not good enough at this. I don't have the skills. I don't have the, the, the training that's really needed to do whatever it was, all these different roles and challenges to really meet them fully and, and with the wisdom that they needed. 
And so it just seemed too hard. And I saw my mind really sinking into that resistance about, again, it felt like I was just on this treadmill that was bringing these things to me. And I was really suffering around it about how, how did I get here, basically? It's not, you know, it's, it's a second arrow. It's not fair. You know, why me? And then I had this moment of grace where the thought just came, it's your karma. And it's, again, not a rocket science kind of thought, but it brought with it just the realization that all of the choices I had made in my life from my very first retreat where because I was in, living and practicing in India and I had a lot of freedom of what I did, I kept making choices to be closer to the Dharma, to Dharma people, to Dharma teachings, and to Dharma centers. And it ended up, these choices, I ended up being a retreat manager in England, starting a meditation community, meeting a husband, and getting on this whole Dharma um, trajectory out of these choices. And a lot of, at the heart of it was about service, it was you know always finding my way into working and, and volunteering in Dharma centers and communities. And so I just saw the big picture of all of those choices and the practice that I'd done, you know, the, 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 the retreats and the unfolding in my own experience. And again, it was just like the whole thing became clear. It's like, oh, I see, you know, this is why. Uh, and th- I just dropped the resistance and it enabled me to step more fully into those roles because the resistance is just painful if one is, is doing those. And so that practice of equanimity is a Brahma-vihara of really seeing I was the heir to my actions, to my choices, to my intentions. And that coming in alignment with that really brought a lot greater ease. Didn't make the roles and the decisions and the things much easier, but I dropped the resistance or the, yeah, the why me. It was like, oh, this, this makes sense. I can see this. And so it is much more about empowerment than it is about being fatalistic or judgmental or blaming, as I said. I really like um, what Tanasaro Bhikkhu says about karma. He says, instead of promoting resigned powerlessness, the Buddhist notion of karma focused on the liberating potential of what the mind is doing with every moment. Who you are, what you came from, is not anywhere near as important as the mind's motives for what it is doing right now. Even though the past may account for many of the inequalities we see in life, our measure as human beings is not the hand we've been dealt, for that hand can change at any moment. We take our measure by how well we play the hand we've got. If you're suffering, you try not to continue the unskillful mental habits that would keep that particular karmic feedback going. If you see that other people are suffering and you're in a position to help, you focus not on their karmic past, but on your karmic opportunity in the present. 
Someday you may find yourself in the same predicament that they're in now. So here's your opportunity to act in the way you'd like them to act towards you when that day comes. Remember the golden rule? Which is really a lot at the heart of that. Be unto others as you would have them be to you. And so as I said, intention and how we respond right now is key. But we can't just rest on, oh, my intention was good. We have to be aware of impact, that we can act in ways we think are out of good intention, but actually can cause harm. And this um, can especially come into play as we live and work and practice in more diverse communities, communities that are diverse racially, ethnically, around economic background, cultural backgrounds, experience, abilities, um, gender, sexual orientation, all of the ways there can be a richness and a beauty of diversity. If we're from uh, the dominant culture, perhaps white, heterosexual, whatever, there can be ways that through our ignorance, microaggressions, um, not understanding someone else's experience, we can cause harm without intending it, having good intentions. So this teaching on karma and intention is still in play. Again, it's not a get-out-of-jail-free card. Oh, I had good intentions, you know, and just, oh, sorry if you got hurt. It comes into play as we respond to the impact, as we're sensitive to impact, as we perhaps get feedback about our actions and not be reactive about that. This is not easy for many of us. When we feel we've acted in good intention, but we get the message that it was harmful, needs a great deal of humility and sensitivity and compassion to really open up and learn in this world. Um, I know for me it's been that way of, you know, just, oh, we're all good, kind people. What could be the problem? You know, IMS, Spirit Rock, loving, open, doors are open, anyone can come. And not seeing the barriers that have been created just by the locations of the centers, just by the feeling or the vibe um, that can sometimes be manifested here, just by the attitude that, again, majority dominant culture uh, participants can have that, oh, this is the way we do it here. And underneath that is this is the right way or the best way to do it and anything else is challenging or, you know, un- unwelcome. And so all on, the, on the gross level, certainly, of harm that might be done, but on these really subtle levels, for me, such a huge learning about institutional racism, just the, the fact, the way institutions get established and the norms that get created can create barriers for people feeling welcome and seen. And so we need to be willing to change, to respond. And this is also a karmic unfolding, a karmic unfolding. And then again, I said this morning that um, not everything is the result of karma. 
So we can't, you know, everything that happens, anything that happens to someone else, oh, it's your karma. The the list includes weather or accidents or illness, uh, things that happen that are not necessarily out of a karmic unfolding. But the main thing is not to ascribe everything to karma, especially in a way that judges or blames or or, um, invites sort of collapse and helplessness, helplessness. Um, I like Gil Fronsdale, he says, we're not to blame, but we're responsible. And that means, you know, it's not about blame or judging, but how we meet this moment and all of its conditions, that's what's important. When we add mindfulness and wisdom to the understanding of karma, everything changes. When we bring that, those just definitions of mindfulness that I gave earlier there's a, a connection to the present moment where we're not reactive. We can really, hopefully, see more clearly, make these wiser responses. I like this very short poem that I don't think was at all about karma, but to me it seems that. It's called The Little Ways That Encourage Good Fortune by William Stafford. It says, wisdom is having the things Wisdom is having things right in your life and knowing why. If you do not have things right in your life, you will be overwhelmed. You may be heroic, but you will not be wise. If you have things right in your life, but do not know why, you're just lucky and you will not move in the little ways that encourage good fortune. And I would say good karma. You know, the more we understand that acting ethically, acting skillfully, acting out of the Brahma-viharas leads to good karma, leads to um, a lessening of suffering. And the mindfulness is essential to that samasati in its natural movement of developing the wholesome and decreasing the unwholesome. And this karmic unfolding um, brings wisdom in and we see the choices that, lead to a lessening of suffering for ourselves and for others. And so equanimity is such an important factor in uh, the Buddha's teachings. He talked about teaching or practicing the middle way. What's the middle way? Again, this balance. I use these phrases that I love, resting the mind or heart before it falls into extremes, or viewing the world with quiet eyes, that sense of non-reactivity, how we are in the world, in our meditation practice, and our Dharma wisdom, equanimity infuses all of those different aspects. And again, in the practice of cultivating equanimity that we um, worked with this morning, again, this important thing is that we're not sending equanimity out. We're not, I can remember sort of viscerally pointing a finger at the person I was practicing equanimity with. You are the owner of your karma. You need to understand that you, you are responsible for your happiness. I'm like... And when I realized, you know, no one, I think I told you I was practicing my first metta retreat where I did these practices. I wasn't getting teachings. I figured it out for myself. Oh, it's not. 
about them. It's letting my heart rest and actually hold with great spaciousness and balance everything that was happening for this other person. And at, at its heart is understanding Dhamma, right? Dhamma meaning the truth of things, the way things are, the nature of reality. That mind, that wise mind, is equanimous because it knows that, it understands that. And again, say, I will say, it's not cold, it's not unfeeling, it's not indifferent. If it doesn't have a sense of connection, it's not true equanimity. But we have to practice equanimity with equanimity, you know, and compassion and all of the other Brahma-viharas. Sometimes we have to say, this is all I can do right now. This is as balanced as I can be right now with this. And just our willingness to breathe with whatever agitation or fear is a facet of equanimity, is a facet of being, holding that. And what we start to come to see is that equanimity, (coughs) excuse me, equanimity is the natural state of mind. Equanimity is what the mind is naturally like when it's undisturbed. So I often use the image, it doesn't work so well with this cup because it's not clear, but if you have a glass and it's got water but some silt in it and you keep swirling it around, it'll stay murky. That's just nature, physics. But if you let that cup stay still, settle, over time, depending on how fine the silt is, but it will eventually drop, right? And what you'll have is clear water. That image is so helpful for us, for the nature of this mind. We're so used to the busy mind that's judging and commenting, narrating. I spoke about it on another talk. It's the second nature to us. But all of us have touched, if not for moments or longer periods, this quiet mind, the still mind, This is an aspect of equanimity. And we start to see that anything that arises in the mind is extra to that basic nature of calm, quiet, still. We can put things in, we can stir it up, but if we let it settle, its nature is clarity. Its nature is radiance, spaciousness, and responsiveness. Once we know that for ourselves, through our meditation practice, it changes how we relate to our mind. Instead of the mind being an enemy, this thing we have to kind of grapple with and beat down and sort of tie up and try to hold still, it's like we can start to trust the mind trust this natural expression. Calm, quiet, very connected with the concentration that we've been deepening in. The stillness, the quiet. Just like when the 
air is still, and then the breeze flutters. But when there's no breeze, there's stillness and quietness. Once we have a taste of that, we see that's a a taste of freedom. This is the expression of equanimity as a doorway to the free heart and mind. Not that distant, not some long journey far off future, but we can know that in the here and now. And then we see in that clarity the power of our choices. And again, this training to bring our actions of body, speech, and mind into alignment with our deepest intentions, highest aspirations. This is the path and the practice that we do. So I want to end with another poem from Maddie Weingast's um, book, First Free Women. And this is Badra. Lucky. You always considered yourself lucky because things seemed to work out the way you wanted. Now luck has a different meaning. Lucky to be walking a path that finds peace in the arising and passing away of each present moment, regardless of how things work out or don't. You always considered yourself lucky because things seem to work out the way you wanted. That's the eight worldly winds. Now luck has a different meaning. Lucky to be walking a path that finds peace, another word for equanimity, in the arising and passing away of each present moment, regardless of how things work out or don't. So let's just let the words settle. Thanks. So thank you for your attention. About a half hour before coming back for the last formal sit of the day with the chanting of that beautiful expression of the spacious heart and mind, heart of equanimity. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.